So. So we've been talking about understanding the Bible. And uh, last week, a couple weeks ago, we went through the book by book of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Uh, last week, we got a little bit into talking about um, what we call narrative text and the law text. And we talked about how the big issue, or one of the big issues in sort of understanding these books in the beginning of the Bible, is that it switches back between these two different styles of text. And so we talked about how we kind of have to interpret them differently, we kind of have to read them differently. And just by way of review, uh, we said a couple questions, a couple context questions we need to ask whenever we're sitting down to, to read a passage for the first time or maybe study a book we haven't studied in a long time. Is, you know, be aware of what book you're in, in case that's not obvious, and understand that uh, how, how that fits into the big picture. We talked a lot about purpose, right? Author, audience, and purpose. Know who wrote it, know who they wrote it to, and why they wrote it. And if you at least know that about the book when you're sitting down to study it, It'll help you a little bit in understanding what the book is supposed to mean to us today. Um, I heard somebody say a long time ago, if you, you, you can't understand what it means to us today without first understanding what it meant to them when it was being written. So, so last week we looked at uh, Exodus 3 and 4 and talked about uh, that narrative passage there, which is, of course, Moses and the burning bush. And I honestly, I don't really think we finished through all of my sort of notes and observations from it. And uh, I wanted to just open it up to you guys if there was any other thoughts, questions, comments, or uh, any complaints, quandaries, things about that passage before we moved on to Exodus 20. We talked about the burning bush last time. Okay, yeah. <coughs> I'll let y'all know, I had a, a very wise mentor of mine tell me one time, never apologize for your preaching, you know, prepare the best and just let it stand on its own. Um, but sometime between last night and this morning, my allergies and what I thought was just a cough turned into something pretty rough. So I'm going to try and not just cough directly into everybody's ear holes through the mic. Um, but if you can't hear me at times, that's because I'm trying not to just blow out the speakers. So just bear with me. We'll struggle through it. We'll be all right. So narrative versus the law. Um, narrative, as the, the name sounds like, is kind of just a, a fancier way of saying almost that it tells a story. That is not to say that it's not true. Of course it's true, but it's a story that has a purpose. The true story, uh, historic, I think at one point I said it's a historical story with a theological purpose. So it tells us a little bit about God's people, but it does so to reveal something about God. We know all those passages in here about the Israelites, about Moses, about the Bush, about the Ten Commandments, about the Book of Calves. They're really not about God's people as much as they are revealing to us something about God. And so uh, we, we just observed when we were studying Exodus 3 and 4 that we, it's easy to follow. We talked about how when you, when you look at these passages in the Old Testament, you kind of need to break them up into larger chunks than you do the New Testament. New Testament, you can get a parable of Jesus in about six verses. Whereas, for example, that passage we looked at in Exodus really runs from Exodus 3 to about halfway through chapter 4. So you've got you to deal with large chunks of text when you're studying the Old Testament. And so what we're trying to do is just compare these narrative texts that tell us these stories about what Moses is doing to some of these texts of the law. And I figured what, what passage about the law better to study than Exodus chapter 20? What happens in Exodus chapter 20? 
Thank you. That was really just a see who's awake question. The answer is Michael. Okay, we'll try again. Try one again later. So one of the easier passages of the law. If you know any passage of the law in the Old Testament, hopefully you at least generally know these. I'm not saying you've got to be able to list all of them, but hopefully when you see them, your brain at least goes, oh yes, this is a passage about the Ten Commandments. So the problem, or I would say maybe better, I would say the struggle with law texts is we know that we obey some of these laws. Raise your hand if you've committed murder recently, right? Stealing, adultery, bearing false witness, coveting, all the things we would say we do not do. But of course, if I flipped over a few pages and I found that, uh, what is it, Exodus 29 or somewhere in there, it says not to boil a goat in its mother's milk. When was the last time you, you read Exodus or Leviticus when preparing your goats in your milk? Probably, probably not a while. And so the question is, so why do we obey some of these laws and not others? Why do we pick up some of these laws and not others? Well, I've heard a couple different um, ways of trying to dice that. And you know what? Actually, I'll put this out for discussion to see. Have you guys, I mean, who has been asked, who has asked that question before? You know, why do we call some of these laws and not others? Only a few people have ever asked that question. You are much less curious crowd than I am, I suppose. But it's okay. What are some answers you've been given when you've asked that question? Just out of curiosity. I'm, I'm just want to see what people are at in terms of understanding the Old Testament, understanding the law. Okay. I, I might I might uh, debate you just a little bit and be nitpicky about terminology, but I would say that's largely a pretty good, a decent answer. What else? And people said, like, uh, remember the Sabbath and keep it uh, holy, and you no longer do that. Right. Within, so very notably, um, yeah, of the Ten Commandments, Jesus talks about all of them, which it's kind of to Michael's point, we obey the teachings of Jesus, which we certainly do. Um, he talks about all of them except that one. And so that is kind of an interesting point. Has anyone ever heard of um, the categorization of like moral and ceremonial laws and things like that? If you had, I was going to talk about it. If not, I'm not just going to confuse you. Because all I was going to say about it is it's not good. Don't, don't try and use that approach. It's not helpful. It's very arbitrary. Essentially, some people go through and they say, well, these are moral laws and these are ceremonial laws, which is sort of helpful until you realize that you're relying entirely on the person telling you which is which on how to read the Bible. So that's not really, really not all that helpful. Um, <clears throat> so I would say, well, you know what? First, I want us to read a couple passages on what the rest of the Bible says about the law. I wanted to read a few verses. Um, someone read for us Psalm 119, 18. Psalm 119, verse 18. <clears throat> so I didn't want to be here all morning. But Psalm 119, very famously, the longest chapter in the Bible, probably about three or four pages, depending on what kind of Bible you have. Almost every line about Psalm 119 is about the law. At least every paragraph in somewhere there talks about the law. He says, how beautiful your words. It's where we find that your words are a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And David goes on and on and on about the law, which is kind of interesting because 
we might say some of those things about the Gospels or the New Testament or certainly the Bible in general, but none of us would ever say, Leviticus and Exodus, you are liable to my feet, and how beautiful your words are to me. We shouldn't really say that when we think about it that way. But it's important to realize that they did, that they, this was very serious. They took this very seriously. It was very important. Okay, so that's Psalm 119. Um, some of it was Acts 13 through 39. I'm sorry, Acts 13, verse 39. Acts 13, 39. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things in which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. So, David tells us the law is beautiful, it's allowed into our path. We see here, I can't remember off the top of my head who is speaking in Acts 13. I believe it's Paul. But he says, well, really, something was done through Jesus that the law could not do. So there's an important distinction being made here, okay? Uh, how about Romans 10, 4? Romans 10, 4. Sorry, can you read that one more time? I think I just coughed right up. You guys didn't hear what you said. For Christ is the end of the law of righteousness to everyone Yes, okay, so Christ is the end of the law. I think I want to read one more before I talk about that, but I want you to think about that the end of the law, or the purpose of the law. We'll look at at least one more here. Uh, Galatians 3, verse 23 through 25. Galatians chapter 3, uh, verse 23 through 25. Thank you, Billy. So that's that famous, the law as a school teacher, as a tutor, as a, as a guider passage of Galatians 3. So we know and we've talked about how the purpose of, say, for example, Leviticus was to lay out clean and unclean living. But what I want us to understand is at least, at least two things. And that is, number one, that the law is very tied to the covenant. We might look at this later. I want to at least talk about Exodus 21 a little bit. But a little bit later, we'll look at Exodus 23. And we'll read about the covenant that people make with God. And the covenant, as we talked about, is just a contract. Just a, it's a very serious contract and a very serious promise. But the covenant is specific to the people who were involved in it. Right? If, if you go buy a house and you sign a contract, someone else could not later come along and say, Hey, I'm also a part of this contract. I also bought this house. That would not make any sense. Well, this law is tied to this promise that God makes with these people... It is very sort of specific to the people. It is specific to the promised land that he talks frequently about. Everything almost needs to go back to that. So it's tied to the people and tied to the land because of that contract and that covenant. And so it's specific to them. But the other thing I want you to recognize, and this is what we're really going to talk about in terms of understanding the law, is this idea of the end of the law or the purpose of the law. Remember what Jesus... If I told you something, one thing Jesus said about the law, does anyone know where I'd be going with that? First thing that comes, is there something that comes to your mind? Jesus says, I came not to 
I came to fulfill it, not to abolish or to destroy the law. And so, which is why Michael, and I guess we're full circle, um, well, well, I could probably have some nitpicking debates about the terminology of the old law and new law. I would say that that perspective is largely true, that we are obedient to Christ, not because he has destroyed the law, old law, but because he has fulfilled it. So I want to talk about fulfilling it for a moment here. And I'm doing all this because while I agree we are obedient to the new law, as we might want to call it, or really when I say just the, the, the new teachings through Jesus, the covenant through Jesus, the covenant of promise, the covenant of faith, these are all words and phrases the New Testament uses to talk about our salvation through obedience to Jesus Christ. I don't want us to think that our Bibles start at Matthew. And I feel like sometimes that perspective of old versus new can almost get this idea that, well, nothing before Matthew matters. And it's really not true for a number of reasons. But when I say fulfill, and I think the, the literal word there is like to fill up to the fullest extent or to make, uh, to make complete to the fullest extent. Fullest extent. Yeah, no kidding, right? Especially today. There's almost this idea in the Hebrew language of a cup that has been filled completely to, to the brim, or even to the point of running over. Which means, just like a cup, the law existed for a purpose. It existed for a specific reason, and that when Jesus came, he fulfilled that reason. And I've heard several different analogies about the law and things like that. One of them is that, you know, if you're filing your taxes, you file your taxes according to the, the most recent uh, code, right? Like we all file our taxes according to the 2022 fiscal year tax code. We don't file our taxes according to the 1990 or the 1980 tax code, though those existed for those times. We file them by the most recent one. And this kind of works, but over and over, Scripture just tells us how important that passes. And I'm saying, oh, that, that's not, if I just said, oh, we don't just disregard that, it's not important to us at all. We don't have to do something with Psalm 119. I have to do something with Galatians 3.23, where they talk about the importance of these old texts. So even though the law is tied to the land, the law is tied to the people, and when Jesus came, he fulfilled the purpose of that law, for us to understand what Jesus did, we have to understand what he's doing. <coughs> Boy, that sentence made a lot more sense in my head. Let me, let me try again. If Jesus is saying, I came to fulfill the law, and we don't know what the law is, how can you tell me what Jesus did? How can you tell me what Jesus did or what his purpose was on earth when he says, well, I came to fulfill the law, not to destroy it, if we don't know the law? Or if we at least don't know its purpose. And so I want us to understand that when Leviticus tells the, the people not to boil a goat in its mother's milk, or that if you own a slave, you can whip them this many times, but not this many. You can sell them for this, but not for this. The purpose, the purpose of the law is not simply obedience to the law. But it's actually to create in the Israelites a people who are closer to God. If you remember when we studied Exodus 3, and God appeared to Moses in the burning bush, he said, I will free my people. You remember why he said he was going to free them from Egyptian captivity? He said, so that you can worship me on this mountain. That's kind, of, that's kind of odd. We know the story of the Burning Bush. We know the story of the Exodus and being set free from Egyptian slavery. When you realize that when God appears to Moses, he says, I'm setting you free for the purpose that you can come up here and worship me. 
the way that I want, the way that I desire for you to be. And something we see throughout the Old Testament, and even really the New, is that to be in the presence of God and to worship God the way that God desires to be worshipped, you have to be a certain kind of way, right? You've got to be clean, is the word used over in the Old Testament, but you've got to be spotless as snow, white as snow, blemishless before him, without blemish before him. In this, and that is true cover to cover in the Bible. But to, to be in the presence of God, you have to be holy. You know, so that's when you start seeing people's face melt and their eyes come out and they start getting struck down. And so God says that his purpose is to bring up people out of slavery and bring him into this holy relationship with them. He's telling them, hey, there's some stuff you've got to do to become holy with me. There's some stuff you need to do to become right and to appear before me in a manner that, that is acceptable. Because, again, we talk about just how God is holy, he's above all things, and, and he's more holy than anything we can imagine. Over and over, we see people approach God when they're not supposed to. It is not in well for them. When, when people go behind the curtain, they're not supposed to. When people touch the Ark of the Covenant, they're not supposed to. That is not in well for those people. It's because we are not clean, God is. And we must become clean to approach him. So those people have to rid their sin. They had to become clean, we would say, so that they could approach and worship God in a manner that was pleasing to him. And we have to actually do the same thing, believe it or not. But, we are not made clean by the sacrifices of goats, or the sacrifices of sheep, or the giving of rams, or the horn, and the anointing of oil. We are made clean through the blood of Christ. So the purpose of the law the purpose as to why the law exists for the Israelites is still true for us. We still exist to worship and glorify God. God still wants us to be holy and blameless before him when we worship him and how we worship him. But the manner in which we get there is different. Does that make sense? So we, we, we have to kind of understand this purpose of the law, even if we don't follow it. And it might sound like I'm speaking on both sides of my mouth on that, but questions, thoughts, comments. Am I making sense? Yes, sir. Yes, I, I would agree with what you're saying there. Um, and, and just for the, the mic up audio, I'll uh, clarify that you make an important distinction that I think I probably could have looked at Hebrews, talks a little bit about. Galatians hinted at this, or maybe it was Acts 13, 39, that said, uh, Jesus did what the law could not fully do. And that was, I've heard the terminology of, you know, but the, the sacrifices and the repeat of coming to God rolled back their sin, but it really could not forgive sin. It could not justify them in the way that Jesus could. And so, yes, that's an important distinction. That part of that fulfillment is that Jesus did what the law alone could not do. Absolutely. Yes, sir. Absolutely. I, I would 100% agree. We, we cannot fully understand. I mean, it, it's like I said before. The New Testament was not written in the Old Testament. I brought it later as a prologue. So, hey, here's some other information that might be useful. It's, it's very important to understand how we got from there to here. So, uh, we looked at those passages. The law was not timeless. Even, even then, it was not timeless. It was never eternal. It was never forever. But God's nature is unchanging. And so, we must still approach Him in the right way, 
even if we are not obedient, per se, to the law. So when you ask this question, why do we obey some laws and why do we not obey others? I would say we obey others, and Kim, you kind of hinted this when you talk about the Sabbath, we obey others when they are in, in the teachings that we do follow. I don't, I don't, I don't not murder somebody because the Ten Commandments tell me not to, or I don't not covet because the Ten Commandments tell me not to. But I don't do that because Jesus tells us not to do that. He tells us, and in fact, he actually tells us to do much harder things than just those Ten Commandments. He says, don't just, don't just not murder, but don't even be angry. Don't just not commit adultery, but don't even be lustful. Why? Because he's trying to get them to understand that obedience to the law is not the end to itself. You need to obey the law. But the end is holiness before God. And if I'm going to be holy before God, I've got to do a lot more than just obey a few laws. So, okay. So, all that being said, when we sit down to study a passage, like say Exodus 20, which really runs through, well, I don't know, Exodus 23, about all these laws, we have to understand our context. We have to understand what the purpose of these texts is. We have to understand why they're important, who they're important to. We'll read just a, a few verses. I was trying to decide where in here I wanted to go, but we'll stick with the... Uh, we'll pick out a few verses. Um, Someone record Exodus 20, verse 12 through verse 17. Exodus 20, verse 12 through verse 17. How are you, Father, and the mother of your days, and as you come upon the land which the Lord your God has given you? Actually, I'm going I'm to pause you right there. Turn myself off on that. That right there, and I don't even really intend for this to work out the way you do. you see how even that is specific to the people and specific to the land? It says, Honor your father and mother, why? so that your days may be long in the land which your God has given to you. So again, covenant, very tied to the people, very tied to the land. We are not Israelite people who are living in the promised land that should at least raise some flags to us that this probably does not apply, at least not in the way that we would think it would. But anyway, keep it going. such as be holy, therefore I am holy. Not just obeying your father and mother, but loving your enemies, praying for those who persecute you, things like that. So, not just not bearing false witness, but if so, live peaceably with all men. Um, I guess it's questions. Like I said, I'm, I'm afraid I'm, it's about clear as mud, but I also don't want to just do this. Questions, comments, thoughts? 
because it always make me nervous when nobody asks any questions. Because I'm like, okay, either no one understands a thing I'm saying, or by some miracle of God, everything makes perfect sense. You guys have no questions. Um, what was the purpose of the law? We'll start there. Just so I guess we're, just so we're clear on this before we move on to our next sort of section here. Purpose of the law. To keep people holy before God. I'll, I'll go through one more analogy, hopefully this will maybe clear it up a little bit. When a parent tells their child not to touch the stove when they're cooking, what is their plan there? From hurting themselves. They want the child to grow up and be a successful adult. When you pick out your clothes for your kids in the morning, I don't know what age you have to stop doing that, I guess we'll figure that out, but when you have to pick out the clothes for your kids in the morning, is your goal for them to wear that shirt and those pants on every, say, Sunday morning? No. At some point, you expect them to start picking out clothes for themselves, although you still expect them to look nice, or you expect them to be clean, and maybe not wrinkled, and hopefully match, or at least not clash. I don't know what matching looks like. My standards just don't clash, you know. Not two shades of orange on or something like that. But you have sort of rules and things that you do that your goal is not just for them to obey the things that you're telling them to do, but your goal is actually for them to grow and mature and learn to do those things, even though you're not standing over their shoulder telling them that all the time. And I'm telling you, the, the more we can see God's relationship with his people as this relationship between a parent and child that grows and matures over time, things will click that, that, that maybe wouldn't otherwise. Over and over, God gives them the law and then people disobey him in ways it's like, okay, I didn't I didn't really, like, if we think about the example of Cain and Abel, I almost feel like I can see God saying, okay, I, I guess I didn't realize I had to tell you, yeah, don't murder your brother. Don't murder people. Don't do that just because you're unhappy, just because sin is crouching at the door. Things go on. He says, okay, don't do, the more they grow and they start almost sort of figuring things out, God is giving them more and more rules to be saying, I don't want you to live this way. I want you to live this way. But the end goal is not for them to wake up every morning and check off a list of things that God tells them to do. The end goal is for them to become people who are successful adults, we might say, who obey and worship God because that's the kind of people they are. And in the same way that a parent, they want their kid to become successful, independent adults, not just because they do what you say 24-7, although you probably like that, but because they, on their own, have become somebody who is independent, who is successful, who is obedient. Does that make sense? Okay. Get a little more head now with this. So hopefully, hopefully that makes sense. I was debating. I wanted to finish this, uh, the narrative and law thing last week, and I was debating whether I wanted to start a whole new section this week. And so I was kind of not sure how quickly we would uh, get through all this. So. Uh, Exodus 3.12, by the way, is the passage where he, God says his, he brings them out of slavery to worship them on the mountain. The other, thought, the other verse I would have read earlier was Hebrews 8.13 is what I was thinking of, uh, where he says, by speaking of a new covenant, he has made the old pass away. And so we, we have to understand that our covenant is through Christ. And when we, when we are obedient to the law, it is not for the sake of obeying the law itself, but because it brings us in a right relationship with God. So... Again, last chance for questions, comments, thoughts on the Pentateuch, Leviticus, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy.
All right, well, cool. Well, we only got about 10, 15 minutes left, but we'll go ahead and start our new section here. This next section of the Bible, if you remember our, um, I meant to pull our slides up this morning, but I have failed you. But our next section, we kind of call the historical books, Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. We call them the historical books because they tell us some of the history of God's people. But I would argue that that really can lead us to a misconception about what these books are. They are historical truths, but do not expect Joshua to tell you everything that happens under Joshua's leadership as the people of God. I made this comparison before. That imagine if I had two books, and one is I say, this is a history of the Civil War. This is a history of the Civil War. Let me hand you another book that says, this is what happened to my family during the Civil War. Those are two very different books. You expect this to cover a lot of stuff and just be filled with random facts and events that happened, maybe some historical commentary on those events. But I hand you this book, you know that I am telling you not just my version, but I'm telling you what happened to me. I don't care what happened to my neighbor Joe. I don't care what happened to people over there. I'm telling you this is what happened to us. And I want us to think about Joshua through really 2 Kings at least, if not First and Second Chronicles as well, as really the second book. We call them the historical books. The Jews actually just call them the earlier prophets. The Jews just call them the earlier prophets and the later prophets because they believed they were speaking the word of God, but they were also telling what happened to them. And so again, we talk about reading this and understanding the purpose of it. At no point does God sit down and say, you know what, I think you need to know everything that has ever happened to my people. <laughs> they don't do that. They say, I'm going to tell you some stories because I think it'll be helpful. I'm going to tell you some of the things that happened to our people because I think you can learn from these. I mean, the, the passage we read, these, these things were written for your instruction, to be the schoolmaster, to be the guidance. And I, I, I believe when you study, this becomes evident because how many times can you read these texts that are thousands of years old and you find people behaving the exact same way people behave today? How many times do you see people falling temptation to the same thing people fall into temptation about today? I mean, just, we're in Joshua, so we'll look at the first... I don't know if I'm going to look at uh, these reference verses exactly. But if I asked your kids to tell me one thing Joshua did, what would they probably tell me? What, do you, what would you tell me? I, I, I tell you guys all the time, I have a vegetarian knowledge of the Old Testament sometimes. And so the BBS stories are what stick out to me whenever I'm going back and reading it. But if I can tell you one thing Joshua did, it is Joshua in the city of Jericho. I know that story like the back of my hand. I've heard it since I was six. But you know what happens right after Jericho? and uh, the battle of Ai. The battle of Ai, which is the heading in some texts, chapter 8, by the way, Joshua chapter 8 is what we're talking about, could almost better be called the, I'm sorry, you're right, Daniel, 8 is what I was thinking of, not Ai. Ai comes afterwards. Right after the destruction of Jericho, we have the defeat at Ai 7. He redeems them in 8. We have Ai and Achan. Ai is the place. Achan is the, the man and the man and his family. But again, put yourself in the shoes of these people. God has just said, I want you to destroy this city by doing a very odd and unusual thing. They obey him. And their first thought is, hey, maybe we can do everything else by ourselves. Now on one hand, we're like, that's so foolish. On the other hand, anybody know anybody in their household that might have sometimes acted like that? 
any kids or teenagers that sometimes uh, the moment they're around the corner, like, no, no, I got this on my own, Mom, we'll get it, we'll get it. I just needed you to, to, to bail me out of my problems a week ago, but now I've totally got it figured out and I can do this on my own. Yeah, thousand-year-old problems, people behave the same way. So, Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, um, the books of history, or as, like I said, the Jews called them the earlier prophets, they fill this gap between Moses and coming out of Egypt and all the way into, really, into the era of, Sol- um, of David and Solomon. And uh, as, as we get later and later into the Bible, if you have a Bible that has maps at the back, I encourage you to look at them. I'll try and get some for our slides so that we can kind of follow what's happening geographically because we're going to see that kings and locations and cities and people become very important. And again, this is very difficult for us, I think, sometimes to sit down and read because if you read the New Testament, the only really people you need to be aware of is like Jesus and maybe five other people, right? <laughs> I can get through 1 Corinthians, Romans, Luke, Second John. I can get through any of those books in the New Testament if I know like five people, Jesus and like four other people. Get the Old Testament. You kind of need to be able to keep some notes, keep an idea, keep things square in your head. Because, again, as we've talked about before, when Paul wrote his letters, he expected people to have the gospel. We know that because the letters were written to the church. Letters written to the church. The church had to have had knowledge of Jesus if they were Christians. Everything from here on out in the Old Testament assumes a very deep and very firm understanding of those first five books we just studied. And I will in the bed, if all y'all are like me, you have like an okay understanding of those first five books. And so that's why I said I gotta take notes, I gotta highlight things, I gotta write things down, read it a couple times. But that is one of the reasons our Bible is compiled the way that it is, is because when you get to parts in the middle of the Bible, they expect you to know the things that begin in the Bible. But unfortunately, that's not how we read it very often. And so when Joshua starts telling you about these people and the sons of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, and the, the ancestor of so-and-so, and that they were this way because they were descendants of these people, he is most of the time, again, from here on out, referencing some of those lists of families that we saw in Exodus, that we saw in Leviticus, that we saw even in Genesis. And sometimes you kind of got like, okay, and this is where we have a digital Bible, very helpful come across a name in Joshua and 2 Kings and Samuel, you're like, I've never heard that name before. Who is that? Get out a digital Bible, your phone, tablet, computer, uh, go to your, the local library that had computers with access to the internet. This is an unknown concept. And just look, put the name in the search bar. Figure out when the first time the Bible uses that name. Because more often than not, once you're past about Deuteronomy, they're expecting you to know some of these people. Can you understand it without knowing those people? Sure. But again, if we're sitting down to study and to learn the purpose, you, you need to kind of understand the context that they're expecting you to have. Again, I think of just any other kind of schooling. If you're in sixth grade, you think I'm assuming you have knowledge of fifth grade. Yes. I don't know if you guys know, but the public school system, yes. You were in sixth grade, they expected you to pass fifth. If you not pass fifth, you not go to sixth grade. Unless I think you fail enough, I think I've heard before, if you fail enough, they just sort of shoot you on time to keep going. But that's a conversation for another time. So, if I'm in Joshua, guess what I expect you to have knowledge of? Everything. Everything. Thank you, Jim. Everything before Joshua. If I'm in, here's a trick question. If I'm in 2 Samuel, guess what, sec, guess what the author of 2 Samuel expects you to know? 
Okay, cool. Um, yes, good. All right, glad I'm making sense. You guys worry me sometimes. Good. So, it's why chronological reading of the Bible is helpful, even though it's very hard. It's very hard sometimes to kind of slog through some of these little passages of the Bible. Um, but it's very helpful because you can start to piece the stories together a little bit better. So, we'll put this back up on the slides next week. Again, I apologize, I don't have them. Uh, but if you remember when we were studying the first five books of the Bible, we said we need to know three things. What are the three things? Author, leave your hand. First one is author, purpose, and audience. Who wrote it, who they wrote it to, and why? So, any guesses on who wrote Joshua? Hey, okay, good. That's, again, if you've not had many years in Bible school, if the name of the book is someone's name, it's either who wrote it or who it's to, usually. Sometimes it's tricky. Things like Acts, right? You never really know. But most of the time, if it's named after a person, they either wrote it or that's who it's written to. This is about Joshua. In case we don't know, the first verse of the first chapter of the book of Joshua says, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass the Lord spoke to Joshua. And of course, the first chapter is Joshua's calling. So Joshua picks up really right where Deuteronomy left off. Joshua just tells us what happens to the people under Joshua. It's written by Joshua. The audience is, is sort of the Israelites, but now when we are giving the law, and there, there's an important shift that happens here. When we are giving the law, the audience was explicitly the Israelites, right? God over and over, I mean, every single time God speaks to Moses, he says, go and tell the people this. Go and tell the people the Lord says this. Go tell them the Lord says this. As we shift into these later books, here's what we are starting to see. These are specifically written for a later audience in mind. And that's different. As we look, about, look at it later, we will understand what that means. And we know this because sometimes we have little hints like, well, the Canaanites were in the land that day. Have you ever noticed that when you're reading your Bible in some of these books right here? It'll, it'll reference these time periods and say, well, at this time, things were this way. And so some of these were written really for a future audience in mind. And that's helpful to us because we are a future audience, even if we're not their intended future audience. More on that later. So Joshua is written by Joshua to tell what happened to the people under the leadership of Joshua. And if I could say the purpose of Joshua in one verse, I got a quick thing. If I could pick the purpose of the book of Joshua in one verse, it would actually be the first verse of the book of Judges. And here's why. We read Joshua chapter 1, verse 1. Here's Judges chapter 1, verse 1. Now, after the death of Joshua, it came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, Who shall be first to go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? I would say it's either that, or there's another verse of Joshua that I cannot find at this moment. But when Joshua starts, there's a plan when Moses dies. In fact, if you read Exodus, if you read Deuteronomy, uh, Joshua actually gets mentioned before the book of Joshua. Isn't that crazy? Remember what we said about understanding prior knowledge. Joshua is brought up under Moses, the following Moses' footsteps. Moses made an intentional effort to bring up leadership after he died. Joshua did not. And that is really the purpose of Joshua, is really this, this transition of leadership. Moses not only led the people, but he ensured that there was a plan after he died to lead the next generation of people. How often do we talk about the, the, the generational problems when we're looking at Exodus, when we're looking at Leviticus and Numbers? 
uh, the generation in the wilderness, the generation that disobeyed God, the generation that saw a promised land. Moses took action to ensure there would be leadership in the next generation. Joshua did not. Anybody familiar with the book of Judges? Not a very good story. A lot of chaos in the period of the Judges compared to the period of Joshua and the period of the kings. Why? Because Joshua did not place leadership after his own, for the next generation. Funnily enough, maybe it's coincidence, maybe it's just on my mind, um, this week, one of our, our sermon themes for the next few weeks is going to be called The Next Generation. And it's that idea of thinking about what's going to happen in the next generation of Christians. And part of that is because of the contrast that exists between Joshua and Judges. Just as an aside, contrast, especially going on going forward, we will see that contrast between characters, whether it's David and Saul, David and Solomon, um, Samuel and David at times, contrast between characters is a big, big thing going forward. There's not always explicitly good guys and bad guys, but a lot of times characters' actions are displayed and sort of in contrast and juxtaposed next to somebody else to say, this is what happens when it's done right, this is what happens when it's done bad. Joshua leads the people well, and the book of Joshua, the entire book of Joshua really exists in contrast to the book of Judges. We already have the first bell. Did I miss that? Okay, good. Well, that seems as good as a time to hit a pause at least. Um, next week, we'll do what we did for the Pentateuch. We'll go book by book, and we'll talk about the author, audience, and purpose of Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, and we'll try to get to First and Second Kings. So, thank you, guys.